You are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church Carlisle, a local church in the south end of Louisville, Kentucky. For more information about the life of our church, visit us at SojournCarlisle.com. many of you here this morning, worshiping with us and uh, looking to the Lord together. Um, If you don't know me, my name is James Fields. I serve here as one of the pastors at Sojourn Carlisle. Um, It's indeed a great joy and privilege um, to serve here um, at this church. Um, If you are with us today, maybe for the first time, um, we have these things called connect cards that allow us the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. Um, it looks like this. So feel free to t- fill it out for us. Let us know who you are and what next steps maybe you want to take in the life of our church. Um, it's a, indeed a great privilege to get to know you and to kind of hear from you in, the, in this way um, so we can know how to pray for you. As If you're a member of the church, you know that we always invite you to have prayer requests in the back. And since we've been doing this uh, from the stage, we have been receiving um, some of those prayer requests. And we will ask that you keep those coming. Um, because we want to be able to pray along with you to seek God together as we um, move forward. If you've been visiting us for a while, welcome back. We're glad to have you. Um, But I do want to encourage you, if you are not a part of a community group, take the opportunity to do that. It's a wonderful opportunity to take the next step in being a part of our church. Not just Sunday service, um, not just singing, but gathering with God's people uh, throughout the week. We have some great leaders who lead those groups. Uh, Many of them are here today, and I know it will be our joy to have you to get to know them um, as well. And if you're thinking about joining us, especially in membership, um, I have a date that I want to share with you, if that's okay. Um, Saturday, April 29th, 9.30 a.m. is our next membership class. I know that's almost two months away, y'all. Can you believe April's two months away? Uh, But it is. Um, But if you are interested in learning more, uh, it is usually an all-day adventure. Usually from 9.30, about two, lunch is provided. Um, But if you want to block off that time now so that you can make that a priority, That would be great. We would love to have you. Um, More information can be seen at the welcome desk or talking to myself or one of the elders uh, after church. Today, as we continue in our value of missionality, we'll embark on a new journey through a new sermon series entitled God in the Ruins as we explore the often neglected book of Habakkuk. Um, We'll study Habakkuk over the next six weeks um, throughout the Lenten season, so from now until Easter, And I'm pretty sure that many of you have read this book at least once in the last month, right? I mean, is that about right? Well, before we pray, uh, let's do a quick survey. So who would say that, raise your hand, or who would say um, that Habakkuk is your favorite book in the Bible? Anyone? I got one. There we go. I like that. Um, Who would say, or excuse me, how many are studying this book maybe for the first time in your life? Okay, good. There we go. I got a lot, of, a lot of grace there. That's good. Um, and then lastly, who's excited to study this book together? All right, let's go. All right, let's pray and uh, ask God's blessing upon our time this morning. Father, we do thank you for the grace it is to know you and be known by you. We ask that you would be with us. We thank you that you are not the, just the God of the hills, but you're also the God of the ruins. You're the God when things don't go the way we expect or want them to be or to happen. And we ask that you would show yourself 
and you reveal yourself as the God who's both the God of the hills but also the God of the valleys. We need a God in the valleys because we often go through valley-type experiences in our life. So would you meet us here where we are, God? We're not here to think ourselves happy, God. We're here to be honest with you and to lament the horrible things that we've experienced, the disappointments, the frustrations, the anger, God, that we have towards uh, others and even outsiders, but maybe even towards you uh, for not responding in the way that maybe we desire for you to respond. So, Father, we ask that you will give us grace to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with you this morning. Bless your word and be with your people as they hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. On Tuesday, September 11th at 8.46 a.m., four commercial airline uh, airplanes were hijacked and confiscated. And then they were used as a guiding missile to destroy some very specific historic buildings in the United States of America. Where were you on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001? Now, I know where I was. I know exactly where I was on that tragic day. I was a student athlete at Central Michigan University. I was a sophomore at the time. Um, don't try to figure out my age. Just ask me. I will tell you after the sermon. I was in my political science class at uh, Central Michigan, and I noticed that my teacher was unable to gain access to the internet to teach her class for some odd reason, so she dismissed our class early that day. I joyfully started on my journey going from class to the cafeteria in order to go to practice. And upon entering the building, I witnessed one of the most horrific scenes that I've ever seen in my life. I witnessed literally the first airplane crashing into the twin towers of the World Trade Center while it was happening in live action. You know, when we experience something like this, our hearts rightfully ask the question, why, Lord? Nearly 10 years later, on March 11, 2011, at approximately 2.46 p.m., a massive earthquake struck Japan. Several thousand lives were lost in this earthquake, but the greatest loss was yet to be seen as the earthquake triggered a massive tsunami wave, killing approximately 17,000 people in total. Just two weeks ago, on February 6, 2023, Turkey and Syria experienced one of the worst, if not the worst, earthquake in their region, as a 7.8 earthquake contributed to the deaths of 47,244 people and counting. Just two days ago, on February 14, 2023, the Western world mourned and lamented while remembering Russia's surprise attack on Ukrainian soil. Yes, that was one year ago from today. You know, these traumatic events have left us all wondering and have left us all asking the question, why, Lord? Why, Lord? And the two most common questions that we're left with are these. Why does God allow and why doesn't God 
prevent. We often wonder why does God allow a six-month-old baby to die in their mother's arms? We often wonder why didn't God spare the life of those entrapped within the World Trade Center? We often wonder why didn't God stop Russia from invading Ukraine in the first place? We often wonder why does God allow the drug epidemic to be so rampant within our city? See, these questions are not just for the world, my friends. These questions also filter into God's church. Why does God's people, why does God allow his people, excuse me, to suffer? Why is there so much violence, so much persecution, so much death against the very people of God who are proclaiming the good news all across this world and all across this nation? Some of you may be even thinking, I love God. I honestly love him, but it feels sometimes like God doesn't love nor does he care about me. Yes, even as your pastor, I'm not exempt from asking these questions. <laughs> I often ask the Lord, Lord, where are you in my pain? Where are you in my sorrow? Where are you in my frustration? I often ask, where is the hand of God? As I experience so much in this life? Where is the provision of God in my life as I often see others who don't serve nor care about God seem to flourish and prosper? Thank you, Instagram and TikTok, for making that a reality for me. If you've ever asked these questions or felt like this, listen, church family, there's good news for you. And the good news is this, is that you aren't the first person to do so, and you most certainly won't be the last. Throughout the ages, God's children, like Habakkuk, had often expressed this complaint. Listen in Exodus 17, verse 7, as Moses records this. He says, he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Job even has a similar experience with God, and you know the story of Job, but listen to Job's words in Job chapter 3, verses 20 to 23. He asks this question, why is light given to the one burdened with grief and life to those existence whose existence is bitter, who wait for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with much joy and are glad when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden and whom God has hedged in? If you've ever wondered why is God so complacent with the sins of the, this world or why is God so complacent with the evil and evil's presence within this world, then Habakkuk is the book for you. Before we begin, let's take a quick survey of Habakkuk to better understand it. Now, listen, I'm going to help you understand and hopefully uh, define happiness for you. Do, do you know what happiness is going to feel like for the next six weeks? H happiness is going to feel like sitting next to someone who knows where to find the book of Habakkuk in the Bible. Amen? <laughs> 
So, so let's take some time together to find this book together in the Bible. If you can grab your Bibles with me, just grab them really quick if the one's in front of you. It's in the Old Testament. It's halfway between Proverbs and Malachi. All right. So uh, it's to the right of Proverbs, to the left of Malachi, Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament. It's after Nahum, but it's before Zephaniah. And in there, there's a beautiful treasure of this book called Habakkuk. So who is this man named Habakkuk? Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. But listen, there's nothing minor about his message. He's called a minor prophet because minor prophets were named as such because their message and their ministry were usually shorter than the major prophets in the Bible. And like all of the minor prophets, we don't know much about this brother Habakkuk. The only time that his name is mentioned in the Bible is within his own book that's named after him. But this, what we do know is that Habakkuk's name in Hebrew, it literally means to embrace and or to wrestle. We'll talk more about that as we go on. When was this book written? Well, as mentioned, we know very little about this book, but he wrote during the Babylonian invasion of Israel in around 705 B.C., Thus, Habakkuk was written more than likely in the 6th or 7th century. For what purpose was it written? Like mentioned before, Habakkuk's name, again, his name means to, to wrestle or to embrace. It personifies his ministry. And this is the picture that I want you to get of when you think of Habakkuk. <laughs> it's a wrestler in a match with an opponent. This is what you go home today and somebody say, hey, what did you learn about church? It's like, oh, Habakkuk reminds me of wrestling, right? That's what you tell them over coffee. Habakkuk is a book about a man who wrestles with the goodness of God while living within the reality of a broken and fallen world. Habakkuk is about a, about a man who wrestles with the goodness of God, the, the greatness of God, the grandeur of God while living within the reality of a broken and fallen world. So what makes this book so unique? Why are we studying? Well, look at me for a minute for verse 1a with me. In verse 1a, it says these words, the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. Notice this word pronouncement here. This word pronouncement can also be translated as an oracle. What is an oracle? What an oracle is an announcement of God's righteous wrath against sin. It's a message of judgment from God himself to people, letting them know about the impending judgment that's coming due to sin. And this is why we've named this series, God in the Ruins. The sermon series is entitled God in the Ruins because much like Habakkuk, we also view and experience this world from a very similar viewpoint that he does. And we come to the table asking many, if not the same questions that Habakkuk asked of God, namely, where, why is there evil in this world? Why does God seem indifferent towards the face of evil? Why do evil people seem to go unpunished? And why do the wicked always seem to be the ones winning? You see, Habakkuk is an open dialogue between God and Habakkuk, and it's a personal diary, if you will. 
It's a diary consisting of three prayers from Habakkuk and two responses from God. In other words, while other prophetic books brought God's word to the people, Habakkuk is a book that brings our questions to God. So who is this series for? This series is for those who struggle with experiencing the goodness of God within this broken world. This series is for those who struggle with your faith or are simply struggling with God himself. This this sermon series is for those who struggle believing that God cares about you, that God has concerns for you, and that God loves you. The sermon series is for those who struggle to believe in the goodness of God in light of the atrocities of this world. The sermon series is for those who believe that God is for them, even when the world seems like it's against them. The sermon series is for those who struggle to believe that God is able to save this world from itself. The sermon series is for those who are mad at God. And let's be honest, man, you might be upset with the Lord for something he did or maybe something that he refuses to do in your life. The sermon series is for those who experience the hand of God opposing them rather than providing for them. The sermon series is for those who are frustrated with God's inability to right wrong and punish evil. The sermon series is for those who secretly shake their fist at God and say, God, if you would only have done X, then why would not have happened? The sermon series is for those who are unafraid to say to God, I am mad, I am as mad at you as I can be, and I'm not going to take it anymore. If you've been struggling in this way, if this is, describes the, the, the questions and the details that have been coming up in your heart recently, then I have good news for you. Habakkuk is God's gift to you. It's God's gift to you. How so? Well, it's God's gift to you because Habakkuk accomplished three important tasks throughout the entire narrative. Number one, Habakkuk reminds us that to doubt, to doubt, to doubt is not to sin. Habakkuk reminds us that to doubt is not to sin. Number two, Habakkuk gives us permission to engage with God regarding our doubts. To engage with God regarding our doubts. And number three, Habakkuk shows us how to strengthen our faith by engaging our doubts. By engaging our doubts. You know, the good reminder for us this morning is this, is that doubts can catalyze one's faith and not serve as its deterrent. I love what Gary Parker in his book, The Gift of Doubt, says. He says, if faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? In my own pilgrimage, if I had to choose between a faith that has stared doubt in the eye and made it blink, or a naive faith that has never known the firing line of doubt, I will choose the former every time. 
I will choose the former every time. So how do we allow our faith to be strengthened by our doubts? How do we do this practically? Well, listen, when we experience doubt, when we experience times in our lives when we hit the wall with God, when you feel like you're in a a wrestling with your faith with God, typically and historically, and especially in church circles, we normally have three adverse responses to doubt, but only one is the right answer. So the first thing that when people uh, deal with doubt, the first thing they do, the first option they have, if you will, is that some people will check out. Right? You and I know people, right, who used to attend church faithfully, but due to life circumstances, marital strife, financial concerns, health complications, whatever it may be, they decided to, like, I'm out of here. I can't deal with it. Right? And a lot of times they use those things as an excuse not to be a part of the family or community of God. Now, listen, ironically enough, they're running from the thing that they actually need the most. You see, when they needed the church the most, they made the difficult yet common decision to drop the church altogether. Listen, if you know a person, if if someone comes to your mind that that, that fits that description, what I want you to do is I want you to just write a note to text them later. And, And listen, don't text them a word of shame of where are you. Text them a word of encouragement and say, listen, you're missed here. I haven't seen you in a while. What's going on? How can I be praying for you? How can I come alongside you? How can I love you during this difficult time in your life? So number one, that people check out. Number two, they back out, right? Others will will just walk away from God altogether. And listen, for, for these people, they've been secretly awaiting a time to leave the church and just as, any, as soon as anything happens, as soon as there, there's, a, there's a crackling of thunder in the sky, they're ready to go. And they often say things like this, I knew this God thing didn't work. I knew this wasn't real. I knew this whole business about God and, and just re, was just religion, uh, religious superstition. Because if God is who he says he is, then my world would not be the way it is. So number one, some people check out. Number two, they back out. But listen, we got to learn from Habakkuk's example here. Habakkuk invites us not to check out, not to back out, but this is what Habakkuk invites us to. He invites us to talk it out. He invites us to talk it out. How does this look or what does it look like to talk it out with God? We see it from the very beginning in chapter 1. And two, notice Habakkuk's response to the situation at hand. On one hand, Habakkuk doesn't hit the panic button and say, evidently there's no hope. Right? He doesn't go to a place of of imploding upon himself or self-deprecation. He doesn't go to that place. On the other hand, he doesn't hit the snooze button and says, well, that's just reality, isn't it? This really isn't a problem. This really isn't an issue. He doesn't turn a blind eye to the situation. In other words, Habakkuk doesn't pretend with God, and he doesn't pout to God. 
What Habakkuk does is he brings his frustrations to God himself, and check this out, he allows God the the opportunity to respond. You see, it's one thing to take frustrations to God. There's another thing to wait to hear his response. Taking your frustrations to God without, without hearing the response is like taking garbage out to the dumpster and, and, and having no one pick it up. And, and the more you take that thing to the dumpster, right, at first it feels good because you're getting it out the way. But over time and over season, that container it only, it only has a limited capacity for garbage. <laughs> so the more you take, the more it gets filled. The more you take, the more it gets filled and the more it starts to overflow to other areas in our life. Habakkuk brings his frustrations to God, but he waits and he allows God the opportunity to respond. Through his example, Habakkuk invites us to do two things, and these are the things I would love for you to take down for notes if you're taking notes here this morning. Number one, he honestly confronts God. See that in verses two and three. And then nextly, he honestly, uh, he honestly confronts his grief, or he honestly confronts our grief. So number one, number one, he honestly confronts God. And then number two, he honestly confronts God with his grief. Look with me at verse two to witness Habakkuk's first attempt to honestly confront God. He says these words, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save. You do not save. Notice two important aspects within these verses. The problem here is that Habakkuk is calling out to God, but it seems like God is unwilling to answer him. In other words, the problem is God's inability to respond to Habakkuk's plea. Notice not just the problem, also notice the practice. That although God is not answering him, and although God is not responding to him, Habakkuk is still calling out to God. He's still calling out to him. In other words, instead of turning to himself or to others, the prophet Habakkuk boldly and confidently takes his complaints to God directly. He's not playing a passive-aggressive game with God. He's going to him directly with all of his frustrations, all of his anger, all of his despair, all of him before all of God. Now, before we move on any further, we have to ask ourselves, why is Habakkuk so determined to talk to an unresponsive God? Why is Habakkuk so determined to talk to an unresponsive God? Well, in order to answer that question, we have to go through some historical context, right, where we find ourselves here in this story. Many of you know this, so, so walk along with me. God made a covenant with Israel, right, through, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is also named Israel because when he wrestled with God, after he wrestled with him, he got a new name called Israel. And through Jacob's sons, his 12 sons, or Israel's sons, the nation of Israel was birthed and founded. 
The two greatest kings that ever lived and ever served by far within the nation of Israel were King David and King Solomon, who also lived in covenant relationship with God. Under their reign, Israel had become the world's number one superpower. This was marked by a time when Israel was an invincible nation due to their faith, their trust, and dependence upon God Almighty himself. However, decay and decline set in when Solomon's heart started to leave the Lord. Consequently, he began to disobey God, and he started to marry multiple pagan wives and serve their pagan gods. He started to set up and establish shrines within the very nation of God. And soon after, Israel also fell into idolatry. After Solomon had died, there was a civil war for control within the nation of Israel. Israel split into two kingdoms as a result. The northern kingdom that was named Israel and the southern kingdom that was named Judah. Eventually, due to Israel's constant rebellion against God, they were eventually taken captive by the Assyrians in 740 B.C., and only Judah, the southern kingdom, was left. For a time, God had spared Judah, and under the godly leadership of King Josiah, reform and revival began to take place, but it didn't last long as Judah, too, after the death of Josiah, began to turn to, again, paganism and idolatry. They intentionally disregarded God's word, and they intentionally disobeyed God's law. As a result, Habakkuk started praying to God, asking him to do something. Yet here's the problem. God is not willing to respond to Habakkuk's prayers. He's not willing to respond to Habakkuk's prayer. Therefore, we find ourselves in verse 2. Again, he questions God's inability to respond to his prayers in verse 2, and he says these words, How long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save. Notice Habakkuk is wrestling with the specific question. And here's the question he's wrestling with. Why is God indifferent towards evil? Why is God indifferent towards evil? How is he struggling with this question? Well, as Habakkuk is looking at a world that's literally unraveling from, from in front of his very eyes, He's looking at a world where everything that's not nailed down seems to be coming apart. He's looking at a world where the bad guys seem to win more so than the good guys. He's looking at a world where the naughty and the nasty always seem to be victorious over the neat and the nice. What about you? Have you ever been in a place where your faith is no more? Have you ever been in a place where it seems impossible to have hope? Have you ever been in a place where doubt paralyzes every possible decision that you can consider? Have you been in a place where there are more doubts and fears than courage and faith? It's a good reminder for us that as Habakkuk shares these words in verse 2, 
Habakkuk's faith is literally drying up in a desert of doubt. He's calling out to God, yes, but he's all calling out to a God who seems like he doesn't care. And listen to me, if you can get a picture, when I think of calling out to a God who seemingly doesn't care about me, this is the picture that I I imagine. This is the picture that I imagine that Habakkuk is experiencing in this moment. It looks like a desert ground. Okay. All right. So imagine with me a desert ground that is deserted that is lonely, that is dry. And the only thing that that ground can receive, it's too dry to receive any nourishment. And the only thing that you can see out of this ground, the only thing that you can see out of this ground are the cracks and the crevices that split it apart because it's so dry and it's so broken. When I imagine Habakkuk crying out to God, this is is the picture of, of dryness and brokenness that comes to my mind. So we have to ask ourselves, if you find yourself in a place of doubt, and all of us have, all of us will, and all of us, even maybe right now, you're having some doubt, and that's okay. That means you're human. If you find yourself in a place of doubt, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. How do we move forward? How do we move forward? And what my pastoral advice to you and my pastoral plea to you is that we can learn from Habakkuk's example. You see, Habakkuk was a man who sought God for answers, even through a dry season. Habakkuk was a man who continued to seek after God despite the silence of rejection. Habakkuk was a man who was troubled by what he saw, what he saw, observed, and experienced, yet he pressed even more to ask even more difficult questions of God and of himself. You don't believe me? Well, look at me in verse 3. Look at verse 3 to witness Habakkuk's second, second attempt to honestly confront God. In verse 3, he, he asks this question of God. He says, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Striving is ongoing and conflict escalates. And conflict escalates. Notice here that Habakkuk uses the word violence twice in the first three verses of his book. He says in verse 1 and 2, How long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not say. Verse 3, he says, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Striving is ongoing, and conflict escalates. Listen, when you see this word, and you see multiple words within a short span of verses, you have to ask yourself, why violence? The Hebrew word violence here occurs 39 times in the Bible, And it can be translated as violence or wrong or wrongdoing. And what it's telling us is that Habakkuk is looking at the nation of Israel as it is literally disintegrating before his very eyes. 
And essentially what Habakkuk is saying is what all of us, all of us feel in our hearts, but we don't really want to say to God. And what he's saying is this, everything is messed up. Everything is jacked up. People are messed up. Cultures are messed up. Families are messed up. Systems are messed up. Children don't have dads. Policemen aren't enforcing the law. Attorneys are out for justice. They, they are, they're, they're not out for justice. They're only out for a paycheck. Judges don't care about justice. All they care about is power and control. Elected officials are not protecting people. They're actually using them for their own profitability. And all in the process, the innocent get shaft while the guilty go free. And this is what Habakkuk is seeing. This is what he's experiencing. He's saying, God, it's all messed up. Habakkuk is living within the same violent or messed up world that we too experience. But notice with me, Habakkuk, while Habakkuk saw a dying world, Habakkuk's vision of a dying world caused him to have compassion for that world. Habakkuk saw a dying world, and it broke his heart. But guess what? It led him to a place of prayer. It led him to a place of prayer. So so let me ask you, how does your heart respond to the brokenness within this world? We all see it. We all experience it. We all feel it. We feel the the hardships of it and the difficulties of it. We may even ourselves been victims of it. How does our hearts respond to the brokenness within this world? So far, we've witnessed Habakkuk's willingness to confront God. Now look with me in verse verse 4 to see how Habakkuk honestly confronts God with his grief. Look at verse 4. He says, this is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Justice comes out perverted. Notice here, it's not just God's indifference that's confronting Habakkuk, but it's also God's seemingly inaction. You see, Habakkuk has two problems with God. It's not just that God is indifferent towards evil. It's also that when God sees evil, he chooses to do nothing. Essentially, Habakkuk is saying, God, I know you can. I know you can stop the violence in the south end of Louisville. God, I know you can feed the homeless and find shelter for the widow. God, I know you can prevent abuse within our homes. God, I know you can restore the brokenness in my marriage. God, I know you can heal the ailments and the pain within my body. God, I know you can provide us with children. God, I know you can stop the oppression of the poor, the marginalized, and the forgotten within this country. But for some odd reason, God, you choose not to do it. And because of that, I'm frustrated and angry because I simply don't understand why. I don't understand why. Habakkuk does a bold thing here. Habakkuk boldly points out one of the greatest frustrations 
that we secretly have with God that every single one of us in this room has out, have with God but maybe are too afraid to admit. And here it is. Here's the question. Why does God sit by idly and observe evil in our world without doing anything? Why does God sit by idly and observe evil in our world without seemingly doing nothing about it? Where do I see this in Habakkuk? Well, look with me again in verse 4a. He says this, this is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. What is Habakkuk means when he says the law is ineffective? What he's talking about here about the law that is ineffective, he's essentially speaking to it like ice on a nagging injury. You know, when you have a bruised bone or when you have um, something on your body that's hurting and you put ice on it, what, what ends up happening to your skin as you put ice on it? Come on, talk to me. What, what is happening? Huh? It burns, yes, but why does it burn? Laura, if no one gets it, I'm coming to you. So I'm <laughs> It burns, right? Right? It does. Our bodies become numb to it, right? It gets to a, a place of, of numbness, right, that actually ends up to a place of burning. What Habakkuk is saying here is that God's law has also been numb to no effect. He's saying that's been numb to no effect. In other words, the effectiveness of the law has been paralyzed by the corruption of Judah's leaders. That the effectiveness of the law has been paralyzed by the corruption of Judah's leaders. So what, what do we do when what we know of God is not what we experience from God? What do we do? How, how do we hold these two realities together of God's sovereignty and his goodness but also our understanding of the brokenness and hardship and evil of this world. How do we bring these two things together? I think there's a beautiful picture, actually picture for us in Mark chapter 9. In Mark chapter 9, there's a picture of Jesus being transfigured and having one of the most powerful expressions of his deity on earth before his disciples, his three closest disciples, actually. And as Jesus is being transfigured and feeling the glory and seeing the glory, Man, Moses is like, bro, we need to stay here and set up shop. Like, let's put like three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for, man, we don't, have, we just, we don't need to go back down there. That, that place is broken. Jesus says, nah, we, 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 we don't need to stay here. We need to go where the work is, needs to be done. As they go down the mountain, there's arguing among the disciples. And the reason why there's arguing is because um, there's a man who came to the disciples and asked him to do a special favor, to, to, to take a demon out of his son, to literally pray and cast a demon out of his son. And they go down, Jesus comes down from this wonderful, godly uh, experience. He's coming down the mountain. As he's coming down, he's hearing rumblings of arguing. He goes to find out what the situation is. And the man tells him, listen, I came to the disciples to help me with my son, and he's not, they're not able. Jesus gets frustrated and says, man, how long do I have to be with you, you faithless generation? Jesus then asks the man some questions about his son. How long has this been happening? How long has this been going on? And the man says, since birth. He says, what happens is a demon comes upon him. He cannot speak, and sometimes a demon even overpowers him so much that he 
literally goes into flames or into water to destroy the boy, to kill the boy. Jesus looks at him, and the man responds and says, listen, Jesus, if you can do anything, please, please, please help my boy. And Jesus says, listen, with, all, with God, all things are possible. And the man says, yes, listen, I believe, but help my unbelief. He says, I believe, <laughs> but, but help my unbelief. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the most beautiful images and portraits for us, how to walk through this book of Habakkuk. Listen, when, when you don't understand what God is doing, you have to take time to remember who our God is. When you can't understand what God is doing, when you can't really understand or fathom why things are happening in your life that are maybe antithetical or maybe against the purposes in which you feel like, man, God has for you, when you can't understand what God is doing, you have to go back and remember who he is. And next week as we continue in this book of Habakkuk, we'll see who our God is as he responds to the pleas and the laments that Habakkuk offers. Remember, it's not enough just to have these feelings or have these doubts. It's, it's one thing to have the doubt. It's another thing to take the doubts to God and allow him to respond. Next week, we get to see the beauty of that, our God's response. But before we go, let me just remind you who our God is. Our God is righteous. And because our God is righteous, what that means is that he knows what ought to be done in every single situation of life. God never responds to anything. He knows what exactly needs to happen and how he needs to respond in every situation in life. But not only that, beloved, he's holy. That means that he is eternally set apart from everything else. That there is nothing else, no one else like our God. No one can compare to him. No one looks like him. No one is as good or as lovely or as beautiful or as kind as him. But lastly, our God is good. And he's the essence and the source of every good and perfect thing offered within this broken and fallen world. Listen, I told you guys I've been doing that group leadership collective with those pastors and one of the greatest lessons I learned through that is that I can go to Center Goss and drink my fufu coffee, my mocha coffee, and I can look to heaven and say, man, my God is good. Because I'm realizing that every single aspect of goodness that I receive points to him. Points to him. Not to the one who made it. Praise God for the one who made it. They might have just had luck that day. I don't know. But I'm learning to look and experience the goodness of this life and not point to the one who gave me that goodness or provided that goodness, but look to him and say, thank you, God, for this good thing. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you that you are a good God. We thank you that you give us hope in the midst of our hopeless situations. Thank you that you give us joy when joy is unthinkable in our lives. Would you continue to draw near to your people in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our neediness of you? We ask this in the mighty and strong name of Jesus. 
Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a multi-ethnic church that is firmly rooted in the diverse community of South Louisville. We are seeking to equip our members for gospel engagement and practical, effective ministry to the poor, the marginalized, and disenfranchised here in the south end of Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit our website or email us at info at God bless. Thank you.